0: Today's case is every parent's worst nightmare. Imagine your child goes out with their friends only to never return or in the case of today's victim to return on the brink of death. Today's victim is not so much a victim in my eyes as much as she is a hero. She ended up saving a life and in doing so, she gave her best friend a second chance. Unfortunately though, her battle would be lost, but not before she had the chance to tell her story and name her attackers. Once this case hit the news, the media were full of statements about the dark forces that were at work in this case. But was it truly the work of pure evil? Or was there a more deeper and unsettling truth? Regardless, a young girl, only 18 years old, with so much left to experience from this world, lost her life far too soon, at the hands of people she knew, people she thought she could trust. This is Kirsty Theologo's story. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined, and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Today's episode is controversial in many ways. First, for the reasons that were given by the perpetrators as to why this crime was even committed. And then, for the bizarre information that would seep its way to the surface in the months to follow. But first, let's meet Kirsty. Kirsty Theologo was born on the 5th of July, 1993. She was the second eldest of seven children. Her mother Sylvia had lived quite a hard life and she worked as a waitress in order to support her family. There was no mention of Kirsty's father, and her mother did not appear to have long-term relationships, so the focus for her mom was on providing a home for her children. The home that she could provide was not the biggest or the best, but it was far better than her children being left out on the street. Broken windows, doors secured with wooden spoons stuck through the keyhole openings and an oversized mattress that the children would share made up this home. Life was therefore quite difficult and as in many impoverished situations, emotions are often volatile. This unfortunately was the case with Sylvia and it was often her outbursts that would create distance in the relationship between her children and herself. Her idea of punishment was to have the children sit down with their backs facing the TV for hours on end. And if they made a sound or any type of movement, this punishment would be prolonged. She would also line them up outside of the bathroom where she would spank them. The children would often fight to see who would be where in the line because they knew that whoever went towards the end of the line or at the back of the line would get away with the lightest punishment as her hand would be tired by the time she reached them. And this is how the siblings grew up. Discipline and the manner in which it is served affects each child differently as they develop and mature. Some all begin to shy away from conflict, and others, like Kirsty, begin to rebel. As she grew up, she no longer willingly took the punishments that were doled out to her. She would scream and shout and as she grew older, she would threaten to retaliate. Her mother, Sylvia, would later state, My kids know it, and so did my neighbours, within a six-mile radius, that she got as good as what she gave. And with that dynamic at play, the relationship soured quickly between mother and daughter. And Kirstie continued to rebel. Rebellion in teenage years, whilst normal, is also a cry for control in one's life and a struggle for love and acceptance. On occasion, Kirsty was also kicked out of the house by her mother, and her mother would gather the children in order for them to vote on whether she would stay or whether she would go. Something along the lines of, according to her, hands up, Kirsty stay or Kirsty go. Yeah, I won't comment on that. As Kirsty progressed through her teens, she loved taking care of her appearance, and she would make sure she always wore makeup before leaving the house, like many other teenage girls. Her attention to detail ended up leading to much teasing from her family members, who had nicknamed her Cleopatra as she was always preening herself and looking after herself and they had often stated that she could not have a hair out of place. The truth is, she took pride in her appearance, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm pretty sure she loved the fact that she could control that aspect of her life. Just prior to everything that occurred, Kirsty was a grade 11 pupil in Huar School Di Fakal. Outside of school though, she was the life of the party. And this is where she met her best friend. Through my research, it became clear and apparent that Kirsty's best friend, who was the other victim in this case, wanted nothing more than to move on and to leave this traumatic event in her past. For this reason, I will not be using her real name in this episode, and all footage and images of her will have her face blurred out. I think it is vitally important when telling stories that do not belong to you to exercise kindness and respect, in order to do more good than harm. What I can tell you, however, is that Andrea lived an incredibly difficult life before these tragic events even occurred. When she was just a child, her father had killed three people, including his own mother. This left her mother alone to raise six young children. As she grew up, the focus was much on the younger children which left her to seek her own love and comfort. And she found such comfort in her friendship with Kirsty, who was four years older than her. The two had hit it off immediately and they became best friends. They had bonded at first because, as Andrea later said, she was also a freaky wild chick. As children, they would play Barbies at Kirsty's home, sometimes walking across the road to get some ice cream. As they grew up, they solidified their bond and they promised each other that they would be friends for life. And they had it all worked out. Kirsty was going to matriculate and then she was going to get a flat with the money she was going to earn from being an actress, a teacher, a secretary. Or an air hostess. Yes, vastly different jobs, I know, but stick with me here. Andrea was then going to come and live with her until she had matriculated. They even had their romantic life planned down to a kind of strange tea, but nevertheless a tea. They were going to date twin brothers and they were going to swap whenever they felt like it. However, all their dreams remained just that, dreams as Kirsty would never have the chance to bring them into volition. And so, as a teen, as a rebellious teen, Kirsty began to experiment with Dacha. Her mother had found out, and she had taken her to court, where she had met a social worker who was based at the La Rochelle Upper Room Christian Centre. This would be the beginning of the end. Because it was here that she would meet her murderers. But these murderers were disguised as friends. And over the months in the year prior to Kirsty's murder, Kirsty and Andrea would hang out often with this group, sometimes even skipping school to do so. Andrea would pull her school uniform over her casual clothes And after Sylvia left to go to work, the girls would stash their bags and head over to their friend's house, Lyndon Wagner. And then other friends would come on over and hang out. And instead of attending school, they would drink, they would watch movies, and they would play video games. The relationship between the boys and these two girls was quite a strange one. As in Andrea's own words, they were the boys' teddy bears. Pampered and loved. Look, I'm not entirely sure to the extent of that statement, but it was known that Kirsty had a crush on Lyndon. This would potentially be part of another motive leading up to the crime that was committed but I'll get into that in a little bit. Okay, so in order to understand the people I have just spoken about and I will continue to speak about, let me introduce them quickly. I will go into further depth shortly. There are six individuals in question who you need to know. Lyndon Wagner, who was 21 years old at the time. His cousin Robin Harwood, who was 18 years old at the time. Lester Moody and Jeremy King, both 18 years old at the time. Harvey Isha, 18 years old, and finally Courtney Daniels, who was 15 years old at the time. The chain of events I'm about to discuss are as per later testimony of the perpetrators as well as the victim who survived. We will start the day before everything happened, Thursday, the 20th of October, 2011. On that Thursday, unbeknownst to Kirsty her murder as part of an alleged satanic ritual was being planned. And the strangest part, she was actually present for a portion of this planning. Lester Moody, one of the perpetrators and allegedly also one of her ex-boyfriends, would later state how she was given the code codename Braiflase, which in Afrikaans basically translates to meat, so that she wouldn't know that they were talking about her you will understand how disturbing this codename is when you hear about the full crime. So this basically allowed them to speak about what was going to be happening without fear that she would understand. And at the gathering of her friends, who were all in the same Christian group as herself and her best friend, she was told that they were going to have a bride the following evening and herself and Andrea were invited. Little did they know the horror that was to await them. The very next day, on Friday the 21st of October, Kirsty and Andrea decided to skip out on a slumber party that they originally had planned, and they decided to head on over to their friend's bry. Kirsty, however, had asked her mom if she could attend a church meeting with her friends. And although the girls had met the same Christian group of friends that they had claimed to be meeting, they were not going to a prayer group. Kirsty was 18 years old at the time and Andrea was 14 years old. The girls had then gone on to Wagner's flat where they had met the group of six individuals. When they had arrived, Kirsty had noticed that the entire group were dressed in black. She was like, okay, what is up with that? And someone had given her a black jacket because she wanted to also fit into whatever they were doing and so she had covered her pink top with this black jacket. They then began the night like any other, with a couple of drinks, some laughter and fun. They had then drank some more, smoked some dacha and then decided that they were going to take a walk up the hill. The hill in question, you may ask? Well... It's the copy behind the Lynn Mayer swimming pool in Julia Street. This spot was a favourite for teenagers as it overlooks the Johannesburg skyline. On the way up to the hill, Wagner had then asked Kirsty for some money, which she had given him. He had then gone and given it to Harvey Escher. Why, you may ask? Well, he had instructed him with an empty Tropica bottle to purchase some petrol from the BP garage that was along the way. This would be a vital step in their later plan. When the group had reached the top of the hill, they had looked for some sticks to start a small fire, as well as some stones to sit on. The group then sat around the fire and the mood was described as alive, with everyone having a conversation with one another and laughing. After two rounds of drinks, shots were then poured by the only other girl in the group, Courtney Daniels. Little did Kirsty and Andrea know, but these shots were laced with brake fluid. To digress for a moment, I myself have never heard of brake fluid being used to drug individuals. But according to later testimony, members of the group had previously used this technique on other girls. The results? It would make them lightheaded and sometimes unconscious. Charming. Upon taking the shots, Kirsty spatters out and said that it tasted awful. But Andrea had continued to drink hers because she was not really used to different types of alcohol and what they tasted like. So as far as she was aware, it could very well be normal. Very soon after, Jeremy King had announced that it was time. No one had responded, but Wagner had then placed his arm around Andrea's neck in an attempt to choke her. And then on the other side of the fire, Moody, Howard and King were then attempting to choke Kirsty, who was fighting back vehemently. It was at this point that Isha had allegedly told King to stop, but King refused and instead he had lashed out at him. Harvey Isha would later state, He told me to back off, so I stepped back and watched. Howard and Kirsty fell on the ground. King also went onto Kirsty to continue to strangle her. Kirsty still fighting back, Was hit on the head at least three times with a large rock by Moody, but miraculously she still survived. It had taken three men to subdue her the way she was fighting back. She had then momentarily lost consciousness. It was at this point that the men had moved to the fire and they had begun their ritual. Battered and bruised, she had regained consciousness whilst they were in the middle of their ritual. When she came to she saw them spilling their blood on a Bible over the fire and chanting some form of prayer. At this point Andrea was still unconscious. When Kirsty managed to stand up, Wagner had then thrown petrol over the two of them. whilst they searched for a lighter, Kirsty had brokenheartedly told them that she thought they were her friends. And in the next moment they had set her alight. Andrea had lost consciousness, but when she came to, Kirstie was screaming, Andrea, we must go home, we must go home. At that point, Andrea could hardly see, but she saw someone was burning, and soon she realized it was Kirsty. Wagner had begun to strangle her with her own scarf. She had then broken free and she had run over to Kirsty and tried to put out the flames with her bare hands. However, the petrol that she was covered in caught fire and within moments she was unconscious again. All she vaguely remembered from that point was being pulled, carried and then dropped. And it was at this point that Isha had run away back down the hill. It was at the bottom of the hill that he would later bump in to Howard and Daniels who had also fled the scene. When Moody and King had rejoined the group it was suggested that they go back up to ensure that the job was finished but Wagner had convinced them that the girls were no longer alive and so no one ended up going back up to check. Instead they had gone back to Wagner's home and this is where the police would find them very soon. But more on that in a bit. What the group had failed to realise is that back on the hill, Kirsty and Andrea were still alive. And Kirsty, in a remarkable heroic turn, would carry Andrea down that hill, back to her home on her back, even though both girls were so badly burned. I cannot even begin to imagine the excruciating pain throughout that journey. A journey that was approximately 2 kilometers in distance. Back at the Theologa home, Kirstie's younger brother Alex had been looking out for her when she had not returned. He was also the first one to see her when she finally reached the home, breaking down the kitchen door her friend over her shoulder, her face smashed and her body badly burnt. Alex was in shock and he woke Sylvia up, their mother, just past midnight to tell her that something was wrong. Kirsty, standing by the kitchen basin, had then told her mother, Ma, they poured petrol on me and set me alight. It was Jeremy, Lester, Lyndon and Harvey. They never got my pants off. Both girls were then rushed to hospital. The information was then passed on to the police and it would result in the later arrest of some of the perpetrators at Wagner's home. On the 28th of October, just after 4am, after suffering for a week in hospital and being placed in an induced coma with 75% burns to her body from the waist up, Kirsty Theologo passed away. Her mother was hysterical after hearing the news. Later forensic pathology reports would show that it was due to multiple organ failure. At the hospital, Andrea underwent skin grafts and other treatments in order to limit the damage caused by the fire. After being treated in hospital, she was taken to a rehabilitation centre. Her burns were so severe that she could not even bath. For four months. So as I mentioned, the day after Kirsty and Andrea were attacked, the suspected perpetrators were arrested. After Kirsty succumbed to her injuries a week later, the charges were escalated from attempted murder to murder. Soon the trial that would have so many delays would begin. Sylvia was then forced to face the six accused perpetrators. She would describe the experience as painful and anger-rousing. Despite receiving letters of apology from Harwood and Wagner, she refused to forgive them for what they had done. What am I gonna do with a letter? I want my child and I can never have my child. They didn't give me a choice. Wagner, Isha, Harwood and Daniels were charged with murder and attempted murder as well as with assault to cause grievous bodily harm. All pleaded not guilty. And then, on the other side of it, right off the bat, Jeremy King and Lester Moody confessed to the crime after entering a plea bargain for a lesser sentence with the state. In return for their deals, they were expected to testify against the other accused, namely Lyndon Wagner, Robin Harwood, Harvey Isher and Courtney Daniels. It was here that they would implicate the main leader of the attack, Wagner. After they had given their testimony, they were then sentenced as per their plea bargains. The accused were each sentenced to 17 years imprisonment, five of which were suspended. Courtney Daniels, who was 15 years old at the time, was convicted of common assault for lacing the drinks of Kirsty and Andrea with brake fluid prior to the attack. She was sentenced to six months in prison, suspended for five years. She was released back into the custody of her parents. In November of that year, Harvey Isher was acquitted of all charges as it was established that he had no knowledge or role in the murder. He had told the court that he had no part in Kirsty's killing and had watched from behind a tree as his friends had attacked her. However, as later testimony would reveal, he was picked by Wagner to be the fall guy, as he was not from this country, so the group had just thought that he could easily return back to the Congo. Andrea would later testify and state that the morphine she was given for the pain after the ordeal blocked many things from her memory, but she was at the time able to remember much more than she did in hospital. In testimony directed to Wagner and Harwood, she had said, "We trusted you and we were committed to you. We met you in church. And Kirsty and I had said that we wanted to come and stay by you. Besides Andrea’s testimony, throughout the trial, the various perpetrators, as well as some of their family members, took to the stand. And as court proceeded, more shocking information surrounding the events that transpired came to light. It soon became evident that Wagner was the mastermind behind the entire ordeal. However, he had told the court that it was Moody who often spoke about Satanism. In Wagner's testimony though, he had described how he chose the clothing that they would wear, all black, as well as the place where the murder would occur. He had stated that they could not do it in his flat as they needed an open area but they also needed a quiet area. He then told the court how he had packed candles, a knife, and a Bible in his bag before they had left for the copy. He would go on to state that he knew what he was doing, even though he was allegedly under the influence of drugs and alcohol. He had also said that he had no thoughts, feelings, or emotions during the attack. He had strangled Andrea and then he had dropped a rock onto Kirsty's head three times. A psychiatrist, Dr. Eddie Pack, would state for the record that Wagner was mentally sound enough to be held accountable for his actions. He would state that Wagner's drug use was influenced by his troubled upbringing in a single-parent family with financial struggles. But I mean, that's not really an excuse now, is it? The judge would later state that Wagner was a thoroughly unimpressive witness, who was sly and dishonest. And even though Wagner's actions were incredibly disturbing, as per his own accounts, his mother and family maintained that although they were sorry for the loss of the Theologo child, that Wagner was the most passive, loving child who wouldn't even harm a fly. Yeah, this could definitely be a case of parents not having a single clue Of who their child really is. More common than not, unfortunately. During King's testimony as part of his plea bargain, he stated how the plan to sacrifice Kirsty was made after Wagner had a dream that he could sell his soul to the devil. Apparently after this dream Wagner's Bible had miraculously fallen open on revelations. 1716 which in the King James Version reads how the ten horns of the beast shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. King would then go on to reiterate that Wagner was the leader of the group. However, in many parts of his testimony, he would later contradict himself. And then it was on to Moody. According to Moody, Howard and himself had been smoking one strong skunk zoll after another from around midday on that Friday. They had taken about 30 minutes breaks in between each round. At this point, they said that they didn't even know that they were going to commit a crime later that day. But this is after they had allegedly planned it the day before. Yeah. Definitely of sus if you ask me. After smoking, they had then dabbled in harder drugs, including cats and cocaine. When later asked how they had felt, he had said that they were roofed. Moody, who was the son of a pastor, would also go on to state that it was indeed Kirsty's desire to be sacrificed as the prostitute. And the Bible passage that they had found had reaffirmed this. For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. He would go on to state, I am not the beast. I thought I was one of the horns. Moody had also suggested that they have sex with both of the girls before killing them However, that did not happen. The final strange twist in the tale is that Moody would state that it was as if a spirit was controlling Wagner, as he did not appear to be in control of his actions or will at the time throughout the attack, petrol dousing and drawing a star on the rock where everything took place. This was a common theme amongst the testimony of the perpetrators throughout the trial. Harwood, who had turned 18 just one month before the murder, remained convinced that the acts they had committed were not of their own doing or will. And thus, he repeatedly stated that he hoped the Theologo family would forgive them. A psychologist, Suzette Heath, would later note that he may have blocked out parts of what had happened. This could have been an attempt to lessen his contribution to the incident. She would also later testify that he may not have known the extent of the consequences of his actions. Eventually, after two years and many delays, on the 12th of February 2014, Lyndon Wagner was given a life sentence for Kirstie's murder and 18 years for the attempted murder of Andrea to run concurrently. His cousin, Robin Harwood, was sentenced to 20 years for the murder of Kirsty and 20 years for the attempted murder of Andrea to run concurrently. The judge presiding over the case, Geraldine Borchers, would go on to say that Wagner played a more active role in the killing and that a life sentence for Harwood would be harsh because he was immature, kept bad company, Was under the influence of Dacher at the time of the attack and had a lack of parenting. She had said, I cannot accept that Howard was controlled by evil spirits, music, and friends. He is capable of rehabilitation and he is not a hardened criminal. After the sentence was given, though, Howard and Wagner's family were visibly upset. They would state that they believed that the two men were not in control of their actions that they were victims of the devil and that it was unfair that they had to suffer. We're going to try and appeal and whether it's unfair or fair, we don't know, we just leave it in God's hands. The family would go on to say, the devil is real, if you open the door, he will come in. And that pretty much epitomizes how the case was viewed in the media a ritualized killing for the dark forces. I mean, it's not like the media is known for sensationalism or anything, right? So according to the narrative, Kirsty was to be sacrificed in order to fulfill the four wishes of the group power, wisdom, fame, and money. Wagner had written down some words that had came to him that needed to be recited at the ceremony. Also, strangely enough, all those months later, Moody was able to remember the Bible verse that initiated everything, almost word for word, despite initial claims that there was no premeditation to the event. The day before the murder, the group had played a game using toilet paper and matches. Yes, I said toilet paper. This game had indicated who was to be sacrificed. A question was asked and the way in which the matches fell out of the toilet paper would determine if the answer was yes or no. I'm no expert on the occult, but I'm pretty sure that this is not the way that things are done. I'm just saying. This game had then indicated to the group that Kirsty was set to be the prostitute. But here's the even stranger part that was told in court and that I previously just touched on. Kirsty had apparently wanted to be the sacrifice all this time. She had allegedly told them on previous occasions that they should drink her blood, eat her flesh strip her naked, and burn her. Yeah, somehow I'm not buying that. And neither did her best friend nor her family. She had apparently said this three times, twice while under the influence and once while sober. She, however, was not told that they were planning on committing the sacrifice on that Friday night. Between the men, they had agreed that King would consume her and Moody would set her light. So the markers of the dark force were there: an occult symbol drawn onto a rock, the presence of candles and blood during a seemingly ritualistic sacrifice, and then, of course, the continuous reiteration of the perpetrators that they were simply acting out a verse from the Bible in order to satisfy the desire of the dark forces. I mean, it doesn't even make sense if you truly think about it. So, let's look deeper. So, if you're familiar with my series and my videos, you will know that I have mentioned Satanic Panic quite a few times, most recently and notably in the Morne Harmsa case. At the heart of it, satanic panic is a moral panic, a societal fear of the occult, and has thus led to many unsubstantiated cases of ritual abuse over the years. In South Africa, we were the only country in the world to develop an occult-related crime unit. Wait, what? Yeah, that was a thing. Now my usual disclaimer. I am by no stretch of the imagination saying that dark forces do not exist. However, I am saying that often a misunderstanding of what is deemed the occult leads to more chaos than anything else. So here is why, in my opinion at least, I believe that it wasn't necessarily the dark forces at play. The one glaringly obvious thing that stood out to me time and time again through all of the perpetrators' testimonies was a distinct lack of knowledge surrounding Satanism and the related practices. In later testimony, Wagner would state that the group knew nothing about Satanism, but they were inspired to traverse the dark path spurred on by rap music and, of course, the Illuminati. Moody would say that apart from watching horror movies, listening to rap music and Jay-Z, he knew nothing about the occult. So then, with no grasp or understanding of the occult, why blame it for the evil acts that were committed? Well, the main potential reason is that it is almost seen as the easy way out. By placing responsibility for actions onto another force, there is a distinct lack of liability undertaken by the accused. In this way, the occult operates as a scapegoat. There is also the chance for such offenders, if believed, to get off with a lighter sentence and also to not be judged as harshly by their community and even their family. And that in part explains why others choose to believe this narrative too. If your child commits a terrible act, it's far easier to say that it was the evil forces that made them do it, rather than admit that it was all their own doing. And thus to also admit that there are deeper underlying issues at play that you are either unaware of, or contributing to. Now that is a tough pill to swallow. And on a side note, this is also often seen with mental disorders in which the blame for a heinous crime is placed solely on a disorder and thus the disorder gets a really bad rip, thereby creating more stigma for others who are living with a disorder perfectly fine. In this specific case though, for example, Wagner and Howard had both grown up without a father figure which had a role to play in the way in which their particular understanding of the world developed. Howard was known to be more submissive growing up and had quite an immature personality. He was described as kind and friendly. He did, however, spend much time with his cousin Wagner, who on the other hand, displayed more antisocial behavioral characteristics and was more rebellious. He would often skip school and was later described by psychologists as having impaired intellectual ability. Wagner also had an extensive family history of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. However, there are no assessments that showed that his behaviour was as a result of either such diagnosis. To the dismay of his defence team. Prior to the crime, Howard was living with Wagner in what was deemed the flat of hell where they used excessive drugs, alcohol, and had multiple women over. It would later be hypothesized that the drugs he used made him aggressive and contributed to the fantasy world that he lived in and the lack of restraint that he demonstrated. I personally feel as though Howard was influenced a great deal by Wagner, a cousin whom he admired and looked up to. That is not to say that he had no culpability or responsibility of his actions, but rather that peer pressure had a role to play. In a developing adolescent, it only takes a single strong influence to impact the trajectory of a vulnerable mind. Without more information on the childhood of each of the convicted perpetrators, it's impossible to pinpoint all the contributing factors. But it is evident that it was a combination of factors that led them to the crime that they ended up committing without being able to search the mind of those who committed such heinous acts, we can never really know the true motives. Perhaps it may have been jealousy as a result of relationship drama, as Andrea had initially suggested. Or perhaps it may have been as a result of peer pressure, and dark desires to rebel. Or perhaps it had something to do with their substance abuse. Regardless, the outcome remains heartbreaking. And the damage and inaccuracies of unethical reporting and sensationalism only serve to continue to spread manufactured narratives that cause more panic than anything else. And in the midst of all of this, the victims and their families are forgotten. A simple afterthought, if even that. After the attack, Andrea moved from foster home to foster home as her mother was unable to provide for her. She dreamed of being able to go to boarding school just so she could start her life over. She had said, I've had 16 years of hell and I really deserve a better chance. I really need to start my life over because I can't keep thinking that my best friend's gone and I'm the girl that got burned also. I want that to be completely cut out of my life. I'm going to live my and her dream. In a later interview, she spoke about forgiveness and how she will not publicly tell the convicted that, but she has set herself free from them. I'm not sure exactly where her path led her, but from my research online, I have established that she is doing well. She looks happy and she is with someone who loves her and whom she appears to wholeheartedly love too. She dreamed of being a teacher one day and being able to travel. And I hope that she has been able to fulfill those dreams. Sylvia struggled immensely after the loss of Kirsty, turning to drugs and later attending rehab. She also ended up suffering from many health issues brought on in part by the stress of the trauma itself. She had also proceeded to lock her children in the house for two months after Kirstie's death in a bid to protect them. She did not want anything to happen to them. The Theologo family dynamics changed drastically and her children blamed Sylvia for Kirsty's death. In their eyes, she was her mother and she was supposed to have protected her. Sylvia also feels sad because of the way that their relationship was prior to everything happening and for the fact that she will never be able to make amends. She remained adamant that the devil had nothing to do with the crime and that it was rather just a bunch of youngsters wanting to commit a bad deed. When remembering Kirsty. Sylvia had said. I don't know how to explain it. She was Kirsty. She laughed. She laughed from her soul, from inside her gut. Thank you for joining me this week to pay homage to Kirsty Theologo. A true heroine, a girl who was so brave and fought so hard, despite the odds being stacked against her. Her courageous act resulted in a second chance for her best friend. And for this reason and so many more, she will never be forgotten. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!